Section 14 of Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Scientists. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Scientists by Elbert Hubbard. Chapter 14 Ernst Haeckel, Part 2. Haeckel was educated for a physician and began his career by practicing medicine But his heart was not really in the work and he soon arrived at the very sane conclusion that constant dwelling on the pathological was not worth while Hereafter I'll devote my time to the normal not the abnormal and distempered The sick should learn to keep well he wrote a friend and again if an individual is so lacking in will that he cannot provide for himself then his dissolution is no calamity to either himself the state or the race this was written in his twenties and seemed to sound rather sophomorish but the idea of the boy is still with the old man for in the riddle of the universe he says the final effect upon the race by the preservation of the unfit through increased skill in surgery and medicine is not yet known in another place he throws in a side remark thus our almshouses homes for the imbeciles and asylums where the hopelessly insane often outlive their keepers may be a mistake save as these things minister to the spirit of altruism which prompts their support let a wiser generation answer that question Doubtless Haeckel could make a good argument in favor of the doctors if he wished But probably if asked to do so his answer would paraphrase Robert Ingersoll when that gentleman was taken to task for unfairness towards Moses Young man you seem to forget that I am not the attorney of Moses Don't worry there are more than ten millions of men looking after his case Ernst Haeckel is not the attorney for either the doctors or the clergy it was Darwin and the origin of species that tipped the beam for Haeckel in favor of science Very shortly after Darwin's great book was issued in the year 1859 a chance copy of the work fell into the hands of our young physician He read and spoke English and in a general way was interested in biology as he read of Darwin's observations and experiments the heavens seemed to open before him Things he had vaguely felt Darwin stated and thoughts that had been his Darwin expressed I might have written much of this book myself He said the love of nature had been upon the young man almost from his babyhood all children love flowers and mix easily with the wonderful things that are found in woods and fields at 12 years of age Ernst had formed a goodly herbarium and was making a collection of bugs and not knowing their names or even that they had names He began naming them himself Later it came to him with a shock of surprise and disappointment that the bugs and beetles had already had the attention of scholars But he got even by declaring that he would hunt out some of the tiny things the scholars had overlooked and classify them Every man imagines himself the first man and to think that he is Adam and that he has to go forth Get acquainted with things and name them reveals the true bent of the scientist Dr. Haeckel was ripe for Darwin's book He was looking for it and it took only a slight jolt to dislodge him from the medical profession and allow the law of affinity to do the rest 
Wallace had written Darwin's book under another name, and if these men had not written it, Hickel surely would, for it was all packed away in his heart and head. As Darwin had studied and classified the Serapedia, so would he write an essay on rhizopods. Luck was with him. Luck is always with a man of purpose. He had an opportunity to travel through Italy as a medical caretaker to a rich invalid. Sickness surely has its uses, and rich invalids are not wholly a mistake on the part of Setibos. Heckel secured the leisure and the opportunity to round up his rhizopods. He presented the work to the University of Jena, because this was the university that Goethe attended, and the gods of Heckel were three. Goethe, Darwin, and Johannes Müller. Müller was instructor in zoology at Berlin, a man quite of the Agassi type, who made himself beloved by the boys because he was what he was, a boy in heart, with a man's head and the soul of a saint. Someone said of Müller, to him every look into a microscope was a service to God. In his reverent attitude he was like Linnaeus, who fell on his knees on first beholding the English gorse in full flower, and thanked heaven that such a moment of divine joy was his. Müller was a Jena man, too, and he gave Heckel letters to the bigwigs. The wise men of Jena discovered that there was merit in Heckel's discoveries. Original investigators are rare. Most of us write about the men who have done things, or else tell about what they have done. So we reach greatness by hitching our wagon to a star. For the essay on rhizopods, Heckel was made Professor Extraordinary of the University of Jena. This was in 1862. Heckel was then 28 years old, and there he is today after a service of 49 years. Heckel is married, with a big brood of children and grandchildren about him. Some of his own children and the grandchildren are about the same age, for Heckel has two broods, having had two wives, both of whom sympathized with the Tedine philosophy. With the whole household, including servants, the great scientist is on terms of absolute good camaraderie. The youngsters ride on his back. The older girls decorate him with garlands. The boys work with him in the garden, or together they tramp the fields and climb the hills. But when it comes to study, he goes to his own room in the zoology building, enters in, and locks the door. When he travels, he travels alone, without companion or secretary. Travel to him means intense work, and intense work means to him intense pleasure. Solitude seems necessary too close, consecutive thinking, and in the solitude of travel through jungle, forest, crowded city, or across wide oceans, Heckel finds his true and best self. Then it is that he puts his soul in touch with the universal, and realizes most fully Goethe's oft-repeated dictum, All is one and indeed to goethe must be given the credit of preparing the mind of heckel for darwinism in his book the freedom and science of teaching heckel applies the poetic monistic ideas of goethe to biology and then to sociology all is one and this oneness that everywhere exists is simply a differentiation of the original single cell the evolution of the cell mirrors the evolution of the species the evolution of the individual mirrors the evolution of the race. This law, 
expressed by Goethe, is the controlling shibboleth in all Haeckel's philosophy. In embryology, he has proved it to the satisfaction of the scientific world. When he applies it to sociology, our Bellamy's are looking backward to Sir Thomas Moore and expect a sudden transformation to a utopia, not unlike the change which the good old preachers used to tell us we would experience in the twinkling of an eye. Haeckel builds on Darwin and shows that as the Cirripedia which makes the bottom of the ocean, the coral insect which rears dangerous reefs and even mountain ranges, and rhizopods that make the chalk cliffs possible did not change the earth's crust in the twinkling of an eye so neither can the efforts of man instantly change the social condition souls do not make lightning changes karl marx thought society would change in the twinkling of a ballot but he was not a monist and therefore did not realize that humanity is a solidarity of souls evolved from the very lowly forms and still slowly ascending and the beauty of it is that the marxians are helping the race to ascend by supplying it an ideal even if they fail utterly to work their lightning change in the end there is no defeat for any man or anything when men deserve the ideal they will get it so long as they prefer beer tobacco brawls and slums these things will be supplied when they get enough of these something better will be evolved the stupidity of George the third was a necessary factor in the evolution of freedom for America All is one all is good and all is God The Marxians will eventually win but by Fabian methods and socialism will come under another name as opposed to Herbert Spencer Haeckel does not admit the unknowable although of course he realizes the unknown No man ever had a fuller faith and if there is any such thing as a glorious deathbed, it must come to men of this type who believe not only that all is well for themselves but for everyone else. How a deathbed could be glorious for a man who had perfect faith in his own salvation and an equally perfect faith in the damnation of most everybody else is difficult to understand. A true monist would rather be in hell asking for water than in heaven denying it. He loves humanity because he is humanity and he loves God because he is God as a single drop of water mirrors the globe so does a single man mirror the race and the evolution biological and sociological of the man mirrors the evolution of the species when one grasps the beauty and splendor of the monistic idea how mean and small become all those little fearsome schemes of salvation whereby men were to be separated and impassable gulfs fixed between them those who fix gulfs here and now are hotly intent on showing that god will fix gulfs hereafter and thus we see how man is continually creating god in his own image his idea of god's justice is always built on his own and as usually our deities are more or less inherited heirlooms of the past we see that it is not at all strange that men should be better than their religion they drag their dead creeds behind them like a stagecoach with preachers and priests on top kings and nobles inside and coffins full of past sins in the boot a man is always better than his creed unless he makes his creed new every day these hand-me-down religions seldom fit 
and professional theology it seems to me is mostly a dealing in old clothes in the month of september nineteen hundred four Haeckel was a delegate to the Freethinkers Congress at Rome. To hold such a convention in the Eternal City, right under the eaves of the Vatican, was surely a trifle indelicate, to use the words of the Pope. And it was no wonder that at the close of the Congress the Pope at once ordered a sacred house-cleaning, a divine fumigation. Forty years ago he would have acted before the Congress convened, and not afterward. Special mass was held in every one of the Catholic churches in Rome partially to atone for the insult done to Almighty God Over three thousand delegates were present at the Congress every civilized country being represented a Committee was named to decorate the statue of Bruno that stands on the spot where he was burned for declaring that the earth Revolved and that the stars were not God's jewels hung in the sky each night by angels on this occasion Haeckel said this Congress is historic it marks a white milepost in the onward and upward march of freedom we have met in Rome not accidentally or yet incidentally but purposely we have met here to show the world that times have changed that the earth revolves and to prove to ourselves in an impressive and undeniable way that the power of superstition is crippled and at last science and free speech need no longer cringe and crawl we respect the church for what she is but our manhood must now realize that it is no longer the slave and tool of entrenched force and power that abrogates to itself the name of religion the heckle attitude of mind is essentially one of faith heckle's hope for the race is sublime there are several things we do not know but we may know sometime just as men know things that children do not and yet we are only children in the kindergarten of god and this garden where we work and play is our own the boy of ten or even the man of sixty may never know but there will come men greater than these and they will understand the monist the man who believes in the one the all is essentially religious Haeckel has chosen this word monism as opposed to theism deism materialism spiritism Dr. Paul Karras is today the ablest American exponent of monism and to him it is a positive religion if monism could make men of the superb mental type of Paul Karras well might we place the subject on a compulsory basis and introduce it into our public schools but Haeckel and Karras believe quite as much in freedom as in monism all violence of direction is contrary to growth and delays evolution just that much the one of which we are part and particle single cells if you please is constantly working for its own good we advance individually as we lie low in the Lord's hand and allow ourselves to be receivers and conveyors of the divine will and we ourselves are the divine will the contemplation of this divinity excites the religious emotions of awe veneration wonder and of worship it is a world of correlation the all is right here there is no outside force or energy no god or supreme being that looks on interferes dictates and decides 
to admit that there is an outside power something uncorrelated is to invite fear apprehension uncertainty and terror this undissolved residuum is the nest egg of superstition the man who believes that god is the whole and that every man is a necessary part of the whole has no need to placate or please an intangible something all he has to do is to be true to his own nature to live his own life to understand himself and this takes us back to the socratic maxim know thyself no man ever expressed one phase of monism so well and beautifully as emerson has in his essay on compensation this intelligence in which we are bathed rights every wrong equalizes every injustice balances every perversion punishes the wrong and rewards the right the universe is self-lubricating and automatic the greeks clearly beheld the sublime truths of compensation when they pictured nemesis it is absurd to punish leave it to nemesis she never forgets nothing can escape her our duties lie in service to ourselves and we best serve self by serving humanity this is the only religion that pays compound interest to both borrower and lender worship humanity and you honor yourself and the world has ever dimly perceived this for history honors no men save those who have given their lives that others might live the saviors of the world are only those who loved humanity more than all else all men who live honest lives are saviors they live that others may live he that saveth his life shall lose it we grow through radiation not by absorption or annexation to him that hath shall be given we keep things by giving them to others the dead carry in their clenched hands only that which they have given away and the living carry only the love in their hearts which they have bestowed on others i and my father are one the thought is old but to prove it from the so-called material world through the study of biology has been the life work of ernst haeckel undaunted we press ever on end of section fourteen